And now I'll introduce today's program. There's nothing I like better than a big-time Canadian success story. And I think that I and probably everyone can safely say that uh, they're a favorite of the man who is our special guest here today, too. He certainly has been responsible for enough of those success stories. Making Toronto one of the most important and world-renowned centers for the international film industry is just one that springs to mind. Pierce Handling would say that to be successful, you must be passionate about what you're doing and persistent in doing it. He's been the director and CEO of TIFF for 15 years. He first joined TIFF in 1982 and has personally attended or worked at 23 of the 25 events. Now that's passion and persistence for you. Piers would also say that to be successful, you have to believe that your vision of what could be really can be, and you have to make sure that it will be. Because of his vision and under his guidance, what was once a small, left-of-mainstream film fans event has become one of the most important platforms for launching and enjoying new films in the world. The best measure of success is how often and how well you help promote the success of others. Well, the ripple effects of TIFF's success are everywhere, in the films and careers that it's launched, the boost in tourism that it provides for the city, and the lift it gives to the whole entertainment and hospitality sectors. All owe a debt to TIFF and Pierce Handling. Pierce's list of personal successes keeps growing too. This year, he was appointed a juror at the Cannes Film Festival. A great honor, a huge responsibility, and from what he's told me, a test of endurance, too. He has been awarded the Chevalier des Arts et Lettres, France's highest cultural insignia, and in 2001, he was included in Entertainment Weekly's, uh, that magazine's list of the entertainment industry's 100 most powerful people. Today, he'll speak to us about what new successes are on the horizon for TIFF. After Pierce's talk, we are privileged to have a panel of some of the film industry's brightest stars joining us, each a special Canadian success story in his or her own right. We'll have Deepa Mehta, director and producer of Water, Earth, and Fire. Jennifer Beshwal, director and producer of Manufactured Landscapes. And Don McKellar actor and writer of The Red Violin. Now that's a very short introduction to the many, many things they've done, so it's just, you'll hear more later. And moderating this panel and our discussion today is Brian Johnson, McLean's senior writer and film critic and known to many of you in this room. Now to start things off, please join me in welcoming the man who made Toronto the critic's choice for film, the director and CEO of the Toronto International Film Festival, Pierce Handling. Boy, thank you, Helen, for that most generous introduction. And there's so many people in the room today who have actually been a part of this success story. And I'd like to acknowledge them because it certainly isn't the, uh, the function of one person to run this organization. They have all made me look exceptional over so many, many years. And I'd also like to thank the Canada Club, the Canadian Club, for organizing this timely conversation about the role that film and creativity can play both in our city and in our economy and in our future. And I'm honored to share the podium 
some of the people that I've worked with very closely over the years, and I've seen them grow up, Canadian film artists, Deepa Mehta, Jennifer Beishwal, and Don McKellar, and critic Brian Johnson. Now, what I'm hoping to do today during my brief remarks is to give you a sense of how different Bell Lightbox is from, well, from anything anyone has seen ever before. When you're building a museum, an art gallery, or an opera house, people know what these buildings promise and what they do. I don't think this is the case with our new building. When you look at me, I know you see the director of the film festival. That's what I'm known for. When you hear the name of TIFF, you think of the film festival, but that's only part of the story. Bell Lightbox is not about the film festival. It's about much, much more. In fact, the film festival will only be a small part of what happens in Bell Lightbox. It will only occupy 10 days of a 365-day program. A small, albeit noisy, fraction, but a fraction nonetheless. Bell Lightbox is about everything else we already do. Our children's film festival and year-round children's programming. Our year-round screening program called Cinematheque, which is the envy of the world. Our unique library, our special collections, Canada's top 10. Our Sunday morning sneak film program called Real Talk. Special Delivery, which takes films into at-risk communities. Our outreach programs, our amazing film circuit that programs Canadian and international films across Canada. A program so creative that it was awarded the Peter Drucker Prize for Innovation. I know everyone in this room has heard of the film festival, but I bet most of you have no idea of the range, scope, and wealth of these programs that we produce every week of the year. So Bell Lightbox is not about the film festival, although the festival will use it. It is about everything else we do, and just as importantly, the things we want to do. While it's a challenge to find the words for something that's the first of its kind, it's easy to find the arguments for it. Actually, with all that is bold and new and happening year-round in Bell Lightbox, the question isn't, why should we create such a thing? It's why, for heaven's sake, wouldn't we? Today, I want to answer that question. Why wouldn't we? When I last stood at this podium in September 2000, there was no such thing as Facebook, YouTube, Google, or Twitter. DVD, HD, and GPS were only initials. Cameras on cell phones didn't exist. The explosion of this technology means that today we are surrounded by imagery, especially moving images. In a few years from now, we could be watching videos on our dessert plates when the luncheon speaker strays into boredom. Just as the medium has advanced with stunning speed, so has the message. Now, why is any of this important? I believe we are living in a watershed moment in our history. The word, the text, everything that Gutenberg brought to our culture 500 years ago with the invention of the printing press is being challenged by the moving image and the photograph. In a word, the visual universe. The linear, rational, single-channel style of thought represented by print is being overtaken by the non-linear, ambiguous, multi-channel nature of the moving image. Our children lead the way to the future. What are they doing these days? Reading books or playing with images? No need to answer this question. It's obvious. What's not so obvious are the long-term effects the moving image will have on the world. 
but we strongly believe there is a necessity and an urgency to teach and cultivate an understanding of the moving image in all its diversity, in all its forms. We want to provide a unique context to show films from all around the world, to use film as a tool for communication, and yes, for understanding and change. Just look at the power of a film like Slumdog Millionaire, Hotel Rwanda, or closer to home, some of the films made by people on this podium. Water, manufactured landscapes, blindness. These are all films you have heard of, but the riches of the cinema extend far beyond a few films we have shown at TIFF. The riches of the cinema go deep. They run from silent to sound films, from Cinemascope to 3D, from Alfred Hitchcock to the superb Indian master Satyayat Ray, the Japanese titan Kenji Mitsuguchi, and the French iconoclast Jean-Luc Godard. And these days in the film festival universe that I travel in, films from Romania, Iran, and Argentina are creating the heat. India, Japan, France, Romania, Iran, Argentina. That sounds a lot like the new Toronto to me. Bell Lightbox is an attempt to capture these ideas, to build a center that will lead the world in the discovery of film and the moving image. We want to create a home for film where audiences of all ages can immerse themselves in everything they want to know about the movies. We're setting ourselves this challenge because we believe it's necessary. It's necessary not just because the image is challenging the written word in today's society. It's necessary because film connects us to the world and to other people, to shared experiences, but also to experiences radically different than our own. Movies can take us out of our comfort zone. They also have the power to connect us to our own culture. And that, to me, is a pretty important agenda. Whether it's a film made here in Toronto, or one made by somebody from the prairies, the west coast, the east coast, or in the case of the fast runner, from our Inuit community. I believe that TIFF is uniquely positioned to lead the world in achieving this ambitious agenda. If we are successful with Bell Lightbox, in five years when people think of TIFF, they will think not just of the highly successful 10 days in September, but also about those other 355 days a year. We began 34 years ago as a tiny 10-day festival. Now we are one of the two most important film festivals in the world with an annual economic impact of $135 million. What began as a 10-day cultural initiative expanded into year-round programming 20 years ago. We began to build towards Bell Lightbox in 1990 when we started a year-round screening program in Toronto. Today, TIFF Cinematheque has an international reputation. It has curated some of the most important showcases of film in the world, programs that have toured the States and Europe to exceptional reviews. The next part of the dream was established when we built a large documentation and research center of books, magazines, photographs, and posters, all devoted to the movies. Our collections include the archives and artifacts of David Cronenberg, Adam McGoyan, Deepa Mehta, and numerous other Canadian filmmakers. Slowly, we added to the menu of what we were offering. In the mid-90s, we started a festival for our next generation of audiences, for children. Today, Sprockets, our film festival for children, is also one of the most important in the world, allowing children and families to see films from around the world, films you will never see in your local cinemas, foreign films, films about other cultures, and in a city as diverse as Toronto, 
I think this is essential. Today we partner with dozens of other organizations and reach all kinds of audiences, from the hundreds of mental uh, health patients at Toronto General Hospital who participated in screenings and workshops through our Real Comfort program, to the 2,500 kids offered free admission to our children's films through our pocket fund, and the 3,000 teenagers from underserviced areas who took part in film workshops through an initiative called Special Delivery. And you should see the films that come out of these workshops. Strong, powerful issue films about what it means to live in Toronto. Fifteen years ago, we began to take our programs outside Toronto, across Canada. We created Film Circuit, which screens essential Canadian and international films in almost 200 communities across the country. By 2007, we were touring Canadian films to 35 countries around the world. Given that there is not a single film organization in the world with such a deep and unique range of activities and expertise, our aspiration to become the most important center in the world for film culture and learning is almost Canadian. We have to be the best in the world before we can talk about, of dreaming about it. But as Marshall McLuhan once said, I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it. So what better way to take our rightful place in the world stage than to create the world's preeminent film destination, which anyone, young and old, can visit any day of the year and gorge themselves on films, filmmakers, film history, and the future of the medium. Bell Lightbox will offer a new experience every day of the year. It will be both resolutely local and relentlessly global in its programs, its ambience, and its aspirations. We aspire to be the Guggenheim, the Louvre, the Tate Modern of film. Is this realistic? Well, just ask David Pico, the co-founder of Luminato, the Toronto Festival of Arts and Creativity, that in just three years has achieved a world-renowned reputation. It pays to dream large. Bell Lightbox will enable us to do more of what we already do and will enable us to create new initiatives that bring artists together with the public in ways that our lack of a permanent home makes impossible. Bell Lightbox will allow us to partner with other film festivals in the region to provide a hub of creativity and innovation to invite the community in, as well as to reach out to those communities and to cement our reputation as a global leader in discovering and understanding film. Young Canadian filmmakers will benefit through our ability to access the most important creative talent from the international film community. Bell Lightbox will be physical and virtual. We will stream online, enabling film fans from around the world to access the treasures inside our new building. The campaign goal for Bell Lightbox is $196 million, and we are well on our way, we are well on our way to this target. We've raised about $150 million to, dollars to date. We're determined and optimistic that we will reach our campaign goal, yes, even in these tough times. Before I close, let me add one more perspective. TIFF has been seen as largely a cultural event that has now grown to become an economic engine. I think it's time we updated that view. What TIFF produces today is creativity in a highly innovative way. We became a global film leader by being more creative than others. We've grown into a community leader by being highly creative in how we engage the people and institutions of Toronto. We've become a creative leader by acting as an incubator, giving audiences an outlet to build and generate new perspectives in new ways. 
imagine what more we can do when we have a roof over our heads. Thank you very much. I'd now like to welcome the panel to the stage, led by Brian Johnson, uh, Deepa Mehta, Jennifer Beshwal, and Don McKellar. Oh, yes. I, think so. I don't think we have to do anything. I think it's, it's going to happen. Here I am. <laughs> right. Can anybody hear us yet? Yes. Yep, I hear an echo. Okay. Hello. That's good. I'm always amazed, Piers, that uh, you can be a CEO and a cineast at the same time and still manage to fulfill both mandates without feeling like an imposter in either one of them. Uh, it's remarkable. Um, when I was, uh, I asked about the, what this panel was about. <laughs> I never got a satisfactory answer. Still when waiting I, for that. Still waiting. <laughs> when, I, when I talked to Piers, he said, well, it's about the Bell Lightbox. Uh, I talked to Helen. She said it's about everything and anything. Pretty well, paraphrasing Helen. So maybe the Bell Lightbox is a paradigm for everything and anything. But when I look at the filmmakers that we have here, they are very much Toronto filmmakers, Canadian filmmakers, but who have also made films about everything and, and anything. Um, Deepa, you have made, well, films about fire, earth, water. I mean, you know, you're pretty well covering that. Uh, Don, you, you've, um, <coughs> you've done the apocalypse sort of every which way with, with blindness and last night, uh, very good of you to actually, you know, stage the end of the world in Toronto. <laughs> um, Deepa, uh, manufactured landscapes. Um, you went all the way to China Jennifer, to base. Uh, sorry, did I say Deepa? Did I say Jennifer? Deepa? Jennifer? Jennifer? Oh, we're on television. Oh my God! <laughs> Stop tape. Uh, Jennifer Beshwal, you have. Um, gone all the way to China to show how the detritus of our existence, how our garbage, our cell phones, our blackberries end up in vast waste heaps in, in manufactured landscapes through the, um, through the lens of Edward Burkinski. So really I guess eager for your summary of all this. So this is my long. This is this is my my keynote introduction. But uh, what I want to ask all of you, all of you individually, is where does world cinema, the world, and Toronto, the Toronto Festival. Where does it intersect, maybe anecdotally, briefly, where has it intersected in your particular careers and lives? Where has that kind of electricity sparked? You go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, uh, well, when I heard you describe all, all our careers, as you did, it did make me feel that there is, the thing what is successful about Canadian films, and Piers, I'm trying to tie this into the light box, as you'll see, uh, is, is that, uh, I mean, Canada, we, we have all done films that I think uh, you could only do from Canada, from the perspective of Canada, and using resources of Canada, but that do have an international perspective. And I really feel that with tr the Toronto Festival and the, the light box um, has, a possible, uh, has a possibility of manifesting that kind of desire that we've all been, all been playing with. It's outside of Hollywood. It says access to Hollywood, but it's not Hollywood. 
Uh, it's international in scope. We've all worked with, uh, done films in different countries, used it, international artists and things like that. Um, uh, that would be maybe harder for our American friends. It doesn't have the stigma of being European and being, uh, I mean, I've been to film museums in, in lots of other countries in Germany and uh, Cinematheques in Taiwan and uh, everywhere, but none of them have this, uh, have an international scope. None of them feel like they're addressing me personally. Uh, so in, this is my convoluted way of saying that uh, in, in my career, I felt that uh, what, what my possibility for making films was by accessing international resources from my Canadian perspective. And I think that that's what's made the festival so successful. Toronto is, has this insane enthusiasm for in events, as we've all seen with the festival proved that probably first of all, but also with Luminato and uh, Nuit Blanc and lots of times. It just amazes me. I think we've all had that experience of going to the festival and thought, what these people where? How is this even possible? <laughs> you know, how is it even possible that Toronto Torontonians can be so supportive of film? So open. So open. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, but when it comes to the public screening of films, particularly Canadian films and foreign films, uh, Toronto is pretty much like other cities. Uh, the, they, they're not necessarily going to the Carlton and supporting the films. Um, the light box and the festival represents a potential of creating that event and spreading it throughout the year, like making it a it, festival yeah. of yeah. events, like, yeah. like the festival originally was, a festival of festivals, and, and bringing those people out um, on a permanent basis. Deepa, you really sort of split your career between India and Toronto. And what's the nature of the Toronto pole of that? That circuit. I mean, what, what keeps bringing you back here and what's particular about this city that's, that makes you, aside from the fact that it's home, that makes you think, well, I couldn't make the films that I make without the Toronto connection? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think of myself after, after being here for a long time, uh, finally, in the last five years, I suddenly woke up and I said, oh my God, I'm Canadian. Because for the longest time I felt I was Indian and Canadian, Indo-Canadian. You know, it's like visible minority, non-visible minority. And then finally I said, oh my God, I'm a Canadian. And it felt, it had a lot to do with what happened with my film, Water. Uh, Water was a film that we started in India. It was shut down. It was very traumatic. And I remember uh, when we were thrown out of the country and uh, couldn't make the film, I sat on uh, an Air Canada flight. And we had direct flights those days from India. and. Uh, and I sat on the plane, and the minute the plane took off, I wept. And I was so relieved that I was going to a place that felt safe. And I came here, and subsequently, a year later, we made water, and uh, it wasn't considered a Canadian film, though I felt it, my perspective was very Canadian. Uh, and, you know, by the policies of the government, whatever. It wasn't technically a Technically, Canadian. yeah, it wasn't considered a Canadian film, and that really hurt me. That you know, why wasn't it? I mean, I felt I was Canadian. I mean, I had a Canadian passport. The producer was Canadian. Many of the actors were Canadian, but yet the language wasn't English or French. Uh, then, uh, Tiff, who have had a really long relationship with Piers and, you know, know, know him really well, and uh, said they decided to open the festival with water. I mean, and that is, for me, that was such an important 
decision that you guys took. Because what it did was actually say, you are Canadian and the film is Canadian. And that's what TIFF means to me. And I think to many other immigrants who have not been born here, uh, who came like me from other countries, who are Chinese, you know, from wherever. And uh, here we are, and suddenly TIFF makes us feel we're Canadian. There are no policies. Creativity has no policies. That's, That's interesting. Jennifer, you opened uh, Hot Ducks with Act of God. And that whole notion of opening a film festival, I think probably everybody would assume, well, that's the best place to be if you've got a film, is to open a film festival. But not every filmmaker wants their film to open a festival, because it's a big stage, and it's a big room. And oh, I love it. But you love it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I find it completely <laughs> And Jennifer, did you sort of think, when you were going to open uh, Hot Dogs with Act of God, was that like, uh, oh, great, or was it gulp? Well, Hot Dogs was, of course, a festival that we grew up with, too, because just like all of our films, almost all of our films have played at TIFF, and Hot Dogs, and our films have played at Hot Dogs as well. And we kind of, you know, we were all friends, and it was quite small, and then suddenly we're up on stage with the mayor at the Winter Garden Theater, and I thought, this is a much bigger deal than I thought it was going to be, so I was a little bit nervous. but. I was thinking about the whole idea of, of Canadian, like Canadian content, and how that um, fits in with finding a physical manifestation of this celebration of perspective. And when we were making The True Meaning of Pictures, which is a documentary about an American photographer's work, Shelby Lee Adams, uh, we had to prove, I mean, there, there was a sort of loose definition of what Canadian content meant. You're a Canadian filmmaker, therefore your subject should be Canadian in some way. And in order to get financing, we had to make an argument for the fact that, that making a film about an American, uh, an unmarginalized American group, because Shelby Lee Adams takes photographs of uh, mountain dwellers in eastern Kentucky, what people would derogatorily refer to as hillbillies. And what was my, why, why would I have a perspective on that? And I thought, you know, I don't have to make a film about a Canadian subject to have a Canadian perspective. Yeah. And in fact, I felt that my slightly marginalized perspective as a country that is, has this massive neighbor to the south um, worked very well in, in trying to apprehend what was the caricature of this community in the, in, in the US. And when we made that argument about you know, our, our perspective is Canadian, and by being a Canadian, by virtue of being a Canadian, my perspective is Canadian, and that should be enough. Therefore, we can look to the world. We can, we can participate in international subjects. We can have a perspective on the world um, that makes sense. We don't just have to look at what's here. And something about the idea of having a physical manifestation of that richness is very exciting. Well, cheers. Um, this whole notion of a national cinema, I mean, the festival does make a point of opening every year with a film that if it's not technically a Canadian production, at least involves a Canadian filmmaker. Um, but which way are we going? I mean, on the one hand, uh, this year we had um, Paul Gross's Passchendaele open the festival, and that is more the traditional model of a purely Canadian film because it's the kind of story that could not have really been told without just a solidly Canadian funding basis uh, on a grand scale, a uh, heroic story. Um, and then you've got all of these other kind of co-pro, co-production models of Canadian film. And a lot of people would say, well, the notion of making a purely Canadian film is, is obsolete and impractical. Is the notion of a national cinema 
uh, obsolete and impractical. I think it's becoming questioned, obviously, um, as the film industry becomes far more international. Um, people are employing other talent. There certainly, as everyone's talked about, gone out of their country in terms of subject matter, explored different ways of looking at the world. So I think that at the festival, we will just follow the film artists, Canadian film artists, in terms of what they want to explore. And not just these three people, but David, Adam, Cronenberg, and Goyen, and others are clearly curious about the rest of the world. And I think that's what's, what's probably uh, always interested me about my own culture, is that I don't think we are insular, perhaps in the same way that our American colleagues are quite as insular. We have a great curiosity about the rest of the world and prepared to bring that perspective to it. So, um, plus there's a huge history of Canadian uh, film artists and artists in general leaving the country. I mean, when you actually look south of the border in, in Hollywood, this is, uh, you know, I think we all have mixed feelings about this, but the amount of talent that we send to, to Hollywood is extraordinary. The true commercial Canadian film industry, in my mind, is in, no criticism intended, is in Hollywood. Um, when you have the James Camerons and Ivan Reitmans of the world and some of the great, great talent. And why not? Uh, film has always been the most fluid and mobile of the art forms, um, going back to Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood was, is, was essentially created and formed by uh, Eastern European Jews who all migrated to the States. And I think that, that film just has that, that ability, that capability of, of reaching out across national borders, uh, also creating things that, that, do, that are very, very meaningful to those nations, but at the same time are reaching beyond those boundaries. And just, we're not kind of, I don't think filmmakers are that concerned. I think, don't think many artists are that concerned about the, the national origins. They're, they just actually want to make their own work. And if it expresses something of their culture, and obviously it does, that's fine. And I think even as a culture here in Canada, I think we're beginning to grow up beyond the notion of what is absolutely, resolutely um, Canadian, you know, those, those narrow parameters. I think it's, you know, it, it's an indication of maturity so of, of the country. Let's, uh, let's leave the national debate behind now that we've covered it. Uh, I do have some questions. <laughs> we've settled that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you, Don. Uh, <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. Uh, some questions that have been given to me from members of the audience. Uh, I'll pick the most specific one to start with, and uh, it can go out to any of the three filmmakers here. How and why do you choose your stories or subjects for your films? A very broad question, but maybe you could give me a specific answer. Who wants to start? <laughs> or do I have to name you? Uh, John, go ahead. Well, why do I always start? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's, you, you never know, you know. Um, to me, uh, it's, just, it's, it's just these ideas that uh, sit with me for a while. Because I'm lazy and I'm indecisive, I, I, I never, I'm not one of those guys who pursues an idea for a hundred years and fights for it. I, I try and avoid the ideas. I try and get away from them when they come to me. Uh, and I say, that's a good idea, but it uh, take a lot of work to do that. So I... Uh, the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if it keeps coming back, it keeps coming up. Other people say, whatever happened to that story about... Yeah, yeah, or, yeah I suppose. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and, and I see it in my mind transformed into other stories and it pops up in other work. And I think, you know, I've got to face that. I've got to purge that idea. Uh, so that's, that's how it comes up with me. I don't know. Uh, uh, they, they're personal. They're obviously, they re I respond to them personally in some way that uh, I can't even fully articulate at the time. They, and, then, and then, of course, uh, when they're done, uh, it's usually fairly obvious what's 
personal connection is, but I don't know why at the time. I just can't, can't let it go. Do you have that sort of bifocal thing where it's, you're doing various things and have various ideas in your head, and there's this thing that you should be working on, but then you have this yes. little other thing that you kind of secretly want to be working yes. on? Yes, uh, I think half the work that I've done has come up as an avoidance of, a, of the project I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Jennifer, what about you? Oh, gosh, I'm going to sound impossibly earnest after that answer because <laughs> I am that kind of person who, who does the, the pursuing well, I one thing. I admire that. I wish for, I was. But I, I mean, for me, the, first of all, the, the, the idea has to be unparaphrasable in some way. And if, if you think about art or film as an arena for examining questions of the human condition, um, uh, serious questions of the human condition in some way, unanswerable questions perhaps fundamentally. Um, film and art has the power to move people in a lot of different ways, not just intellectually, viscerally, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, and I think that because of that, I'm looking for um, problems that I can't figure out in some way, that, that can't keep nagging at me in the same way, but also that can't that be... be movies. That, that have to be filmic. I mean, and, and in manufactured landscapes, for example, how to translate scale in a still photograph into a time-based medium, into how do you convey scale in time? That was our huge question in making that film. And if I couldn't have found a response to that, I don't think we would have made that film. It would have been a failure to just show his photographs and say, here's a guy, here's the pictures he takes. Pretty good. Aren't Here they, they are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what would be the point of that? That would just be... So, so it, it, it has to be fundamentally filmic for me. And Deepa, do you want to throw in another point of view there? Or? Well, it's different, and I think it's probably different for different people. But uh, for me, it's generally if I hear or I read something or I hear an incident. And, and, uh, and what intrigues me about that incident is that if I open sort of that Pandora's box, I'll, I'll get to know what I don't know. So what attracts me to the stories that I do is generally the fact that I don't know too much about them. So I love the whole process of getting to learn more about it. I mean, Fire started off with me thinking that, you know, women in India really have a rough time. And I mean, it's kind of broad. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, if they were in an, in, a, in an extreme social situation, what would the reaction be? It's the only extreme social situation that I could think of, this was about 10 years ago, was what if there were lesbians? And suddenly the film became about this lesbian thing, which is sort of funny to me now. But, uh, but that's the whole process of just going through it and understanding the cultural mores, the social mores, the anthropological mores and, and stuff. That, uh, and the same thing happened with water. I mean, I saw a widow when I was shooting uh, young Indiana Jones, believe it or not, in, in Varanasi. And I said, "My, you know, I'm Indian. I mean, I should know more about widows. And I met her. I started talking with her. And, uh, and suddenly, a whole, you know, the, a door opens. And, and you see a world that never existed. Or you, sh you should have known that it existed. But somehow it evaded you. Yeah. So it, for me, it's that process of learning. Mm -hmm. And that's very, uh, I find that fascinating and very attractive. It is about kind of going into worlds that you would never mm -hmm. go into. And we were just, we're, we're working on a, a film project with the writer Joseph Boyden. And Nick and I, Nick Defonsi, my husband who I work with, were up in James Bay on snowmobiles on the frozen Moose River, going out onto James Bay with a lot of 
uh, people with us and a bunch of rye whiskey. And uh, I was thinking... This is like la last week or something? <laughs> no, 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 this was in February. Oh, because I know he was up there last he week. He was right? just up there last okay. week. It's not frozen anymore. Yeah. They were fishing this time. There was still rye whiskey around. But uh, in this case, we were on these snowmobiles, and we go out onto James Bay and look around, and we're surrounded by a completely white, frozen landscape. And I thought, I would just never be here with these people uh, at this time if I did not do this work. And, and the, the enormous privilege of that was, was I mean, I, I feel it every time, and I, I just felt it then. That's true. I, I remember writing Red Violin, uh, which takes place in five countries. I said, when I was writing, making my deal with the producer, I said, yes, part of the deal is I have to go to all those countries. I have to research. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course. So. I've, um, I've actually been given a note to wrap up. It seems we've what? just gotten, what? Seems we've just gotten had started. Anecdotes. Well, you know, we can, we, we, can, oh, we, can, we can go a little further. We can go a little further. There's something I wanted to, uh, to ask you. Piers brought up the whole notion of this explosion in digital media where everybody potentially is a kind of filmmaker um, with whatever device they happen to be using. And as professional filmmakers, I'm curious to know if you see this as sort of a great, fabulous new world of universal cinema. Or is this, oh my God, you know, the, the floodgates have started. How do we distinguish ourselves when everybody and anybody is out there making moving images and, you know, everybody's a filmmaker and nobody's a viewer? I was just thinking about this because I was talking to Ed Brickensky on the phone last night about um, the, 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 the cumbersome and perhaps failing distribution system for film. And that's another reason why Lightbox is an interesting idea, because we were talking about, okay, say you say, I want to see all the films of Stanley Kubrick, or I want to watch all of Werner Herzog's films, and you get to access them. And then you get to say, I want to read all the reviews that were written about those films. Somehow finding these places where we can gather information in an appropriate way um, is fascinating. But it has to be curated in some sense. And when I think about myself with an audience, the, it, it's like a, it's a dialectic of attention. The attention that I spent, or some other filmmaker spent, four or five years. I mean, our films take two, three, four years to make, sometimes longer. It's an, it's an incredibly sustained amount of attention that goes into making that. And, and then you have this dialectic with an audience that has a sustained amount of attention in watching that stuff and participating in it. That's the privileged relationship. If, if it is all, of, I mean, the democratization of, of, of image gathering is fantastic on many levels, but it will never replace, in my mind, that attention exchange. And because otherwise you're watching, what are you watching? You're watching the, the view of a, of a surveillance camera. You know? any, any quick yeah. thoughts? Don, I know you've made a film on a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, no, I mean, I, I agree exactly with Jennifer. That's, those were my thoughts. That I, I, I did this program, uh, I talk, a workshop in Africa this year, and I was really excited. Uh, it was in East Africa, and, I, and in, where they just beginning to afford movies because of black uh, bootleg films. Uh, first chances to see movies and first chances to make movies because they have these cheap cell phones and things like that. It was really exciting. And uh, it, it, they all wanted to learn to make movies. And that was ex really exciting to me. And I think uh, for filmmakers, I, I don't see that as a threat. I see it as, as, as a really uh, a privilege. But ex as I agree with Jennifer entirely, what this really does is make the curators 
crucial, crucially important. That's what everyone's looking for now. They're looking for programmers. There's so many images. There's so much stuff out there. We need someone to choose and to guide us through that sort of web of stuff. And that's what, that's what film festivals, uh, when Pierce said that the Lightbox is also going to have a, a virtual presence, uh, in, in the real world, but also in the e-world, I think that that's a huge new uh, emphasis. It's so uh, much more difficult for you guys now that you've got many, many more times, you know, submissions coming in that you have to look at or somehow, I mean, the slush pile gets higher and higher. Yeah, it does. That whole part of it has changed completely. I mean, it started to change with video, to be honest, Brian. There used to be a period when I started at the film festival, it was just film prints. You actually had to go, it was the physical object you had to go to. Some of them came to us, but we often had to travel. And now it's just so simple to just burn a DVD and send it around the world. Um, and we're looking at about 5,000 films a year, which is extraordinary, to get down to a final selection of a couple hundred feature films. Um, in that pile, sometimes major surprises. I mean, Michael Moore was in that pile with uh, Roger and me. So, uh, you know, Michael was a very young documentary filmmaker who made a film with very few resources, and it just came in the transom completely um, unknown. So yeah, there's some... Kay Armitage sort of had a, Michael delivered in the gym bag, <laughs> Kay in New York City, and threw it up, found a Steenbeck editing machine to watch it on, and, uh, and they watched it, and at the end, uh, so Michael said, well, what happens? And she said, oh, you're in. <laughs> it's a very different world now. It is a different world. I mean, now there's a film we showed a couple of years ago at the festival, which was made for about $300. It was entirely edited um, on somebody's laptop. The entire film was basically like a home movie, but a very sophisticated home movie. Um, and that actually did the festival circuit. So I think the technology is changing. It's not going to um, necessarily result in huge monsters of cinema being produced. But I think that people just have the potential to explore their own creativity and, of course, begin to, I mean, you know, all of us probably write poetry when we're younger or have ambitions of writing a novel. Exactly. Uh, it gives you a kind of sense of, of what, what it really takes to write a good poem or to write a good book. And uh, I think that's important just in terms of your well, final appreciation. But this also, off, it's but a, I think it's going to be, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you, no, 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 last okay. word, last word. No, I, I just feel that in, in many ways, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think that what this technology is doing is, is, is actually going to replace film schools because kids are actually have the ability now to make a film instead of all the theory of three or four years. And I'm finding this, a lot of people are talking to me about that. Well, I think it's great because I've, I've lived in a world where everybody's a writer for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> it's about time you guys dealt with schools, it. You know? Schools still <laughs> existed, so. I want, to, uh, I want to thank everybody for, for coming out and uh, thank the Canadian Club for having us yeah. here. Thank and uh, it's, been, it's, it's been great. And um, what can I say? Yes? You're going to wrap it up for me? I will say to you. <laughs> I want to express appreciation to all the participants and attendees today. Piers, thank you again. On behalf of the Canadian Club, I want to wish you much continued success with TIFF and all of the many other challenges you constantly take on. To Brian Johnson, senior editor and film critic at McLean's, thank you for being our moderator this afternoon, for keeping the discussion, uh, discussion focused, insightful, and on time. <laughs> and to our panelists, Deepa Mehta, Jennifer Beachwell, and Don McKellar, thanks especially to each of you for joining us today, for sharing your viewpoints and opinions. It was an extremely interesting and thought-provoking discussion. Thank you very much.
Thank you all again, and I, uh, I just uh, another round of applause for our guests. But first, I want to tell you that this has been broadcast live on Rogers TV, and I'm sure we made for great television today with such an outstanding panel of distinguished uh, guests. So thank you all very much again.